Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my pleasure to introduce Joe Epstein today, one of the past presidents of the Commonwealth Club. He's on the board of directors, also is uh, the uh, president and CEO of Sierra Steel, and he is going to be interviewing Chancellor Christ. So, Joe. Thank you, George. Uh, Chancellor, I want to make sure that you uh, evaluate my mathematics here. You've been doing this for many <laughs> years, and I've, I think I've got it correctly, but um, I want to say that uh, Chancellor Carol Christ started her term as the 11th Chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, on July 17th, 2017. Carol is a celebrated scholar of Victorian literature and is well known as an advocate for quality, accessible public higher education and a proponent of the value of a broadly based education in the liberal arts and sciences. She's a champion of women's issues and diversity on college campuses, and she vehemently supports free speech on campus. <laughs> Carol Chris spent more than three decades, and here's where the mathematics come in. Carol Chris spent more than three decades as a professor and administrator at UC Berkeley, serving as its executive vice chancellor and provost from 1994 to 2000. And during that period, she sharpened Berkeley's intellectual focus and strengthened many of the institution's top rated departments in the humanities and sciences, as well as advancing major initiatives in the areas of neuroscience and bioengineering. Carol Chris served as president of Smith College, one of the country's most distinguished liberal arts colleges from 2002 to 2013, returned to Berkeley in 2015 to direct the campus's Center for Studies in Higher Education, and was then appointed interim executive vice chancellor and provost in April of 2016 before being named as Berkeley's chancellor. Carol received her BA from Douglas College and her Master of Public Health and PhD from Yale University. She's authored two books, The Finer Optic, The Aesthetic of Particularity in Victorian Poetry, and Victorian and Modern Poetics. Please give a warm welcome to the Chancellor of the University of California, Carol Chris. Thank you. Thank you. So you, uh, you have a very unique perspective, Chancellor, of having multiple careers at Cal Berkeley, spanning a period of almost 49 years. And after receiving your Master of Public Health and your PhD degrees from Yale, in 1970, you came west to Berkeley to join the English faculty in 1970. And as I said, you left Berkeley in 2002 and then came home again to Cal in 2015. So the question, what are the most noteworthy changes on the Berkeley campus that you observed in that span of time? When you first arrived in 1970, the students consisted of what was referred to as Gen X or Generation X. Now that you are chancellor, the students of Berkeley are part of the millennial and post-millennial generation. Are these just labels assigned by pundits, or are there really large differences in students in that time frame? Oh, what an interesting question. First of all, I want to make it clear that I never got a degree in public health, in case it's mysterious to anybody that um, a professor, uh, someone with a graduate degree in public health teaches Victorian literature. Um, that, um, but uh, students really are different. 
I mean, the thing that most concerns me about students now is the level of anxiety that they carry with them. They're extraordinary students. It's wonderful to teach them. They're so bright. They're so idealistic. They're so deeply engaged in what they do. But they're also much, much more anxious than I remember students being of my generation um, or the students who I first taught in the 1970s and the 1980s. I think in the um, admissions scandal that we're seeing unfold, we're seeing some of that anxiety as, um, as students and their parents place what I think is an exaggerated um, value on going to a very small number of elite colleges. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there are other differences in students, too. When I, the Berkeley I came to in the 1970s was mostly a white campus. Um, now it's a <laughs> much, much more uh, diverse campus, um, much more economically diverse as well. So um, it's there. Um, and, of course, the students that... We teach are all digital natives. I'm certainly not a digital native. And that changes the way, in wonderful ways, ways that constantly teach me things. It changes the ways in which they um, respond to the world. Right. Well, there's been a long string of wonderful people that have preceded you in this office. Um, How do you think your governance style and your initiatives will differentiate yourself from past leaders of the campus? I believe when you first came to Berkeley in 1970, the chancellor was uh, Roger Hines. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know whether you want to start with him or mention a few along the way. Uh, there's Chancellor Tian, I remember very well, uh, and, and many, many others. Uh, Robert Bergeno. Uh, I, was, I knew Michael Heyman. Mm-hmm. And uh, so have a... Have fun with it and see if there's anybody that you would like to compare yourself to. Thank you. Um, I have to say, when I was president of Smith, there was not a single person on the campus that did not know who the president was. All the students knew the president. All the faculty, of course, knew the president. The uh, staff all knew the president. People in town all knew the president. At Berkeley, I know Roger Hines as the name that was on my hiring letter. But I, I, I think if anybody had asked me, when I was an assistant professor who was the chancellor, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell them. I, students don't know who, well, some students know who I am, but it, it, it's just, it, the, the, the chancellor of a University of California campus is a much less public and symbolic figure, um, probably for a lot of good reasons, than um, than the president of of a uh, you know a much smaller college, um, uh, the P, the chancellors I was very aware of are the chancellors that I worked with. Um, I've worked with um, uh, uh, four of the past five chancellors. I was first hired by Michael Heyman. I thought he was an extraordinary man. I learned so much from him. I'll tell you just one story. Um, he, um, I was giving my first fundraising speech and I had prepared so carefully. I really wanted the people in the audience, an audience about this size, to give to this project. And I studied my points and I had them all written out. And I gave a very stiff little speech. 
And after um, it, Mike Heyman came up to me. He was a kind of big bear of a man, and he put his arm around me, and he said, Carol, speak from the heart. And that was a really important lesson. I mean, he was saying something about the authenticity of speech and being able to communicate. Changlin Chen was an extraordinarily important mentor for me. And I think, you know, I said undergraduates don't know who the chancellor is. Undergraduates knew who Changlin was. I mean, he was so visible. And he taught me so much. I mean, I really understood from him the importance of being um, a, 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 a visible part of the community the responsibility of the chancellor to create community. He was also very decisive, and he thought about um, what he did in, um, in, 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 I think of it as sort of in capital letters, and then was very good at delegating to all of us who accomplished whatever it was that he set as our, right. our goal. Yeah. So you mentioned the scandal, the admission scandal, and that was going to be one of my first questions. Um, the recent revelation of the admission scandal has not only shaken the higher education community, but it has reminded many of us that families with wealth can do a lot of good, but they can also do a lot of bad. And for some wealthy families, earning your way into a top university through the front door is not always the chosen path. The recent scandal seems to have opened what is referred to as the side door, an illegal way of gaining admission to a top college. Many Eastern universities and even some closer to home have been implicated. Can you tell us what UC Berkeley is doing or what you're doing here uh, to play by the rules and stay away from being tainted? by the scandal. Uh, thank you. Thank you for asking that question. First of all, Berkeley only has a front door. Uh, that um, that it, as a public university, as the University of California, there's a regent's policy against legacy admissions. So that the kind of um, uh, legacy preferences that I was certainly used to at Smith and that people at private colleges and universities take as just the order of business in doing college admissions simply don't operate at Berkeley. It's one of the things I've gotten the most grief about from alumni who don't understand why we don't take into account legacy preferences, but we don't do that. There were a number of year, a number of years ago, about five years ago, um, Berkeley became aware of a vulnerability in its admission system in athletic admissions. Realized that coaches had a great deal of autonomy in admitting students to athletic to their teams, essentially. And at that point, the administration, working with the academic senate set up a system that I think should be a model for other schools. We have for every um, athlete um, that's recruited to one of our teams, that athlete is, um, the file is reviewed both by the compliance officer in athletics and by two different committees, one in athletics and one that is made up of academics. And these two committees look not just at the student's academic record, but also look at the student's athletic record, making sure that this student who is being recruited is really going to contribute to the team athletically. And then we keep very, very, very careful eye on 
any student who is recruited as an athlete who doesn't play on the team to which he or she is recruited. We look at the athletes who play for just one semester and who play for just one year, and we review that list of students, which is very small, against our donor lists. So I, as a public institution, our... The, the integrity of our admissions process is of just paramount importance. I think it's paramount importance for any um, school or college. People have to believe that decisions are made fairly and that there is, I'm going to use this term, but I'm going to qualify it in a minute, that there's an even playing field. They, um, the way I'm going to qualify it is... Um, First of all, there is, as I was saying before, there's enormous anxiety in American um, society today, particularly on the part of um, parents with means and position that their kids get into a rather small number of elite schools. And I think this is really a misplaced value. It, what kids get out of college is so much what they bring to it. It's not that the college has some magic pixie dust that just, you know, going through the hallowed gates enables you to partake in and changes you into, into something else. So you have, on the one hand, anxiety on the part of parents and kids of a certain social strata. And on the other hand, you have a very strong feeling in the country as a whole today that the playing field is not even, not just in college admissions, but in lots of things. And people want to know this for their kids. They want to know that if I grew up in a family and went to a school that didn't have a lot of financial advantages, that I have the same shot as some kid who did go to a very privileged school and, and came from a privileged background. And I think what you're seeing, I, I, the, the fact that this story has stuck for so long suggests that it's touching a really deep um, both social anxiety and um, uh, um, a, 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 an urgent concern that people have about admissions being fair to kids' achievements. Let me expand on one comment you just made uh, having to do with what, what I call the one-and-done athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, that, and the system that UC Berkeley has now developed that evaluates uh, the integrity of the program. I'll be, I'll be very impressed if you know who this person is, uh, Donna Heinell. Yes, I do. Okay. She was the fired associate athletic director at USC. Boy, am I impressed. You should all be impressed as well. <laughs> this so, is a story I've been reading. <laughs> okay, right. All right. So closer to home, the admission scandal has touched UCLA, USC, and Stanford in different ways. And it was recently reported that Donna Heinell, a USC athletic department administrator, in case you don't, haven't read the article, and the acknowledged gatekeeper of athletic scholarship recipients is now a central part of an unraveling bribery scheme, having received funds from Mr. Richard Singer. Uh, so it's her job, it was her job, to That's make right. sure that if an athlete came to USC that they actually had the ability and qualified to compete and to play on those varsity teams. 
And she apparently did a pretty good job for a while, but the money was too much for her. So you do know her. and it, it, I don't know her personally, but I've certainly read about her. And I wanted to describe a little bit the uh, uh, dynamic in intercollegiate athletics that seems to me to um, set some context for this scandal. So you have um, coaches in men's revenue sports that are paid a great deal of money, millions of dollars. And um, those are teams which um, often the players are recruited from families that don't have a great deal of money. None of the um, scandalous cases that have been in the news, the, you know, the, the alleged um, uh, crimes, are in football and men's basketball. I mean, those coaches cannot afford to have somebody on their team who doesn't know how to play. Right. <laughs> it would be a problem. Um, uh, but And so you have, on the one hand, you have the revenue-producing sports. On the other hand, you have the so-called Olympic sports. Those coaches are paid much, much less money than the, um, the coaches in the men's revenue sports. And they're also told, for the most part, that they have to raise money to support their team. It's very different economics. And they recruit largely from um, fairly well-to-do families. Um, so you can see I'm not trying to, I'm not excusing at all. I think this is scandalous behavior. It's terrible. But you can see how the dynamic that I've just described sets up certain incentives and, and temptations uh, that I mm, think have led. And, sure. you know, you have parents really strategizing um, from relatively wealthy backgrounds, strategizing about, you know, what sport their kids should play from a very young age in order to, you know, have a kind of strength when their son or daughter is applying for um, admission to college or university. There's um, a wonderful book by William Bowen. I think he's the most brilliant writer on higher education, unfortunately now dead, called The Game of Life, that um, it talks and it's a very data-driven, fascinating analysis of the, of the large role that athletic preferences play in college admissions. Mm. One more quick question, and then I think we can close this subject and, and move on. Um, apparently at Berkeley, you're forming a task force to evaluate uh, the SAT and ACT uh, exams as a requirement for admission. Can you tell us just a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that actually isn't Berkeley. That's the University of California system well, as system. a whole. So mm-hmm. Berkeley wouldn't have the um, independent authority to make a change in the use of the SAT. I myself have become convinced that the SAT doesn't provide a level playing field for students who take it. There's a lot of research that's shown, some of it done at the Center for Studies in Higher Education that I headed for a while, that shows that um, when you, the, the most immediate correlate with SAT scores is, um, is wealth. And um, there's a racial element in um, SAT scores that they cannot eliminate by other factors. So I'm, I've become increasingly concerned that those standardized tests um, 
uh, provide an advantage to um, uh, candidates for admission who already have advantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they were introduced to be an equalizing um, uh, mm-hmm. factor, but I'm not sure that they are. Yeah, like who can afford uh, private tutors right. except people of means? So uh, I, I certainly agree. Let's uh, switch gears for a moment and go into housing. Housing is uh, <laughs> it's not just a critical issue for all of us, for families and adults, but for students at UC Berkeley as well. The 2017 Housing Task Force endorses doubling the availability of student housing within the next 10 years. Some of the sites recommended for new developments are the Oxford Tract, Albany Village, the Richmond Field Station, and the most convenient and accessible of sites, sites and the most well-known, People's Park. So can you describe how these sites will become an integral part of the campus housing plan, and in particular, how do you plan to deal with what may be potential resistance in developing of People's Park? I'm very happy to talk about that. I, first of all, I want to set a little bit of context. Um, Berkeley only houses 22% of its undergraduate students and 9% of its graduate students. In a housing market that is as expensive and is simply as hard to find housing as Berkeley, this is a real problem. We did a survey that estimated that 10% of our students are homeless at some point or another during their college career. This doesn't mean that they're pushing shopping carts around the campus. Rather, what it means is they're couch surfing, they're, um, they're living in their cars. Sometimes students are just unable to find find housing, even when they can afford housing. It's a real crisis for the campus. And so this housing task force, which I chaired, recommended doubling the capacity of our housing system in the next 10 years. That's um, about um, uh, 7,800 beds. Um, so I get have conversations with people all the time about um, Oh, Carol, I don't build on the Oxford Tract. Why don't you build on the Ellsworth Garage site instead? People who make those comments simply do not understand the dimension of the problem. 7,800 beds is a lot of beds. And it's going to take, Berkeley is actually a a land-poor campus. And it's going to take building on all the land that we have, including People's Park. Now, the segue to People's Park. Um, People's Park, whatever the uh, you think of the ideals behind the creation of People's Park in the 1960s, it's hard to say that the People's Park of today serves those ideals. Um, it's a place where there's a lot of crime, a lot of drug dealing. Um, the uh, homeless people who um, uh, spend a great deal of time in the park um, are often the victims of um, crime. It's re- it's a it's a very very um, it 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 represents for me one of the greatest challenges that we have, perhaps nationally, but certainly in the Bay Area, which are the rising levels of homelessness. And what I decided in thinking about the park is that. Um, Uh, collaborating with the city to help solve the problem of homelessness is a responsibility of the university. And so what we're going to do is use a quarter of the site 
for sustained permanent housing for the homeless. It's 100 to 125 beds. A quarter of the site for a memorial um, and a park. And half of the site for student housing, probably 800 to 1,000 beds. Um, I hope this will unlock the site. I am not so naive as to think that there won't be um, uh, noise and demonstrations um, that, uh, um, that, that almost nothing happens in Berkeley without noise and demonstrations. But, um, but I, I believe the time is now to both think about the responsibility we have as a university to work with the city in helping homeless find permanent housing and also changing the park. So that's what I, I hope I can do. And I hope people who support what I'm doing with the park speak out when those loud voices are raised saying, you can't touch the park, it's sacred space. Well, I have a feeling if anyone can do it, you can do it. Um, I, I don't know. What's, I so. what's interesting is what's most controversial on campus is not the um, is not People's Park. It's the Oxford Tract. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yes. You earlier mentioned that in 1970, that which I said was the uh, Generation X, the students were primarily white, um, and I know that the diversity of the campus is possibly a very, very one of the very top items of your list of initiatives that you want to accomplish. So when you began your career, the Cal campus was, as you said, mostly white, and the faculty was almost entirely male. Uh, considering your strong interest in women's issues and in diversity, how do you see expanded campus diversity playing a major role in the education of Cal's student body? And are your diversity goals based on current California population demographics? Well, let me give a little bit of context and history. Um, Berkeley used to lead the UC system in diversity. It now trails mm. the UC system in diversity. Um, Proposition 209, well, first the Regents Resolutions, SP1 and SP2, and then Proposition 209 were real blows to the campus, and the campus has never really recovered. We have um, only 3%. African-American students. That's scandalously low. If you think of any room of 100 people and only three, only two others being like you, you can imagine how isolating and alienating some of our students can find this. It's... <laughs> <laughs> And so I, I think Native Americans are less than 1%, even though our university is built on what was Ohlone land. Um, he, we have a larger percentage of Hispanic students. It's 14%. But of the other eight um, uh, undergraduate campuses of the University of California, six of them are already Hispanic-serving institutions, which means they have at least 25%. Hispanic students, two of them are almost at that level. So we're really trailing the rest of the system and certainly high school graduation rates, which are now about 50%. So I have um, said that one of my goals is to increase the diversity of the campus. I think this is important in two respects. Um, 
One is that I believe that public universities should educate the people of California, and that means having a student body that in rough terms is representative of the state of California. Um, But the second thing is we all need to know how to live and work in a diverse world, and you don't learn that by not being in a diverse world. And so I think it is as important to our um, white students to have a diverse campus as it is important for um, the uh, representational um, uh, character of the University of California at Berkeley as a public institution to have a really diverse student body. Uh, a few weeks ago, I came out to meet you for the first time, and we talked for a few minutes about uh, what we were going to discuss on this program. I believe you mentioned something about a Hispanic-serving institution, HSI. Could you go into that a little bit, please? Yeah, that means that 25% of your undergraduates or more are um, a, a Chicanx or Latinx is the, is the word that the students use. And uh, we've set a goal in our strategic plan, which was just published in um, uh, December, to reach that goal in 10 years. Um, so we're now uh, strategizing, developing a plan for how we're going to get there. Of course, we cannot use racial or ethnic preferences in admissions decisions, but we can do a lot more than we have done in um, outreach, in yield, and in um, building a reputation as a campus that it's a good place to come if you're an underrepresented student. There is a a Washington Post reporter that did a really interesting uh, story that um, right about the time that we announced we had this goal of becoming an HSI institution. And um, he uh, um, interviewed students at Berkeley, and he interviewed students at Riverside. It was extremely diverse. And he asked the students at Riverside, some of whom had gotten into Berkeley, why would you choose Riverside, not Berkeley? Well, one of the things they said was, well, we could get housing at Riverside. Um, but they also said, because it's an institution that is so much more diverse, it's a place that I feel more at home. And that's what we have to do at Berkeley. Well, I assume most of you, I shouldn't assume, but I hope many of you, if not all of you, most of you are members of the Commonwealth Club. And if you are, you know that we are a nonpartisan organization. Uh, But I can't refrain from asking this question. And I will start by saying that this country has a controversial secretary of education. Since her confirmation as education secretary two years ago, Betsy DeVos indicated her desire to roll back Obama administration guidance rules related to Title IX, particularly as it affected campus adjudications of sexual assault and sexual harassment charges. Critics claim that the rollback would unfairly tilt the rights of the accused in a sexual harassment case against the rights of the victim. Often this is seen as a threat to female students on campus. Please give us your thoughts on the issue. I, that's a, a really important and, and uh, question. I, you all, I'm sure, have read a lot about and thought a lot about the Me Too movement. And I think one of the sea changes I've seen since I was a, a young faculty member 
is that if a woman was sexually harassed or um, uh, the victim of sexual violence in, uh, you know, in the 1970s, even the 1980s, even the 1990s, she felt that it was in some um, way that was hard to describe her fault. She felt that it was embarrassing. It was something she did not want to admit. Um, and that's really changed, that women are, have, have so much respect, the really brave women that have been willing to come forward and say, this happened to me. I was raped. I was sexually harassed. I was inappropriately and improperly treated. I really worry that the changes that are being contemplated in the way in which sexual harassment is, adju- um, is adjudicated will make it less likely for um, women to be willing to come forward because it, um, it, it, it specifies an almost judicial procedure in which um, the uh, accused has the right to question mm-hmm the uh, accuser. So I'm very concerned about the question, the, the changes that she's, that she's seeking to make. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Thank you for that answer. And now we're going to shift gears even again, once more, to free speech. (laughs) Uh, We got a lot of ground to cover and we're doing great, I think. Uh, As the debate over free speech evolved and moved into the Oval Office, I followed it very closely. And as the news rolled out, I was really influenced by the way I was going to frame this question uh, for today's discussion. So since President Trump invited four members of the Berkeley College Republicans to witness the signing of his executive order in Washington last week. And he has tied that order to the federal funding of research projects. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. I was sure that you would have a lot to say on the topic, Chancellor. So give us your full take on this. How does the executive order affect how you will be guided as Chancellor in guaranteeing free speech at Cal? Well, I'm going to step back again and provide some context. Um, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, some of you may know, um, I mean, not know personally, but know of, uh, is um, came to campus to speak in February of, I think it was 2017. And uh, we um, thought we had prepared well for this event. Um, but was something that we never anticipated would happen. We had about 90 police officers for the occasion to protect the event and to provide security for the event and security for him. About 150 of what I can only call, call a paramilitary force came to campus. We had about 2,000 relatively rowdily but peacefully demonstrating students on Sproul Plaza. This paramilitary force armed with bats and bricks and stones um, uh, infiltrated them and started what, what was really a riot. Our police, I think, chose rightly that we could not um, conduct the event safely and canceled the event. Um, I think this was the right call that they made. But this um, uh, quickly got national notoriety. 
Um, the next year, um, we uh, hosted in the fall of 2017 two very conservative um, speakers. First, a um, man named Ben Shapiro. Now, Ben Shapiro really wanted to speak on campus. He was, you know, like a speaker you would have, maybe you wouldn't have, at the Commonwealth <laughs> Club. Have, sure. um, but you said you were nonpartisan. So a, a speaker, you know, who wanted to speak his speech. And we invested very heavily in security. He spoke without incident. He wasn't heckled. He wasn't shouted down. And end of story. Then the next week, or maybe it was two weeks later, um, Milo Yiannopoulos wanted to come back. Um, Milo wanted to do a four-day event that he was calling Free Speech Week. For the minute, let's leave aside that four days is not a week. But anyway, yeah. he would ha- was going to have three events a day and um, 25 speakers all over, all overall. And this was, a, a you know, a real um, – of his speakers that he announced on his website were a list of very famous names in conservative um, cir- uh, circles. Before this event, um, you know, a week or two before this event, some very strange things started to happen. We started to realize some strange things. Student sponsoring student group did not, um, uh, hadn't signed any of the contracts for the rooms. They hadn't put down any of the deposits for the rooms. They hadn't filled out the security forms. This is not the way even, you know, this is not the way you usually plan an event. Then we started getting emails from some of these speakers saying, I've never heard about this. Um, I, I, I have no plans to be at Berkeley uh, then. And what we realized at that point was that you can have some free speech events that are actually so constructed as to try to um, uh, force the university to cancel them. And then the storyline becomes, Berkeley Cancel's event doesn't support free speech. Uh, We decided to play a game of chicken. We decided we were not going to cancel this event. And lo and behold, the day before, the event was canceled by the organizers Mm. of the event. Why I think this is really interesting is that it suggests a kind of um, uh, lack of, um, I don't know, disingenuousness about some so-called free speech events, um, uh, really constructed in such a way that um, they uh, are, um, they're, 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 they're meant to, support a narrative that's very different from Berkeley supports free speech. We have many conservative speakers on campus um, every month. and um, But the trouble is there's no news story. Mm-hmm. Conservative speaker comes to campus, audience listens and goes home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, so I, and so we invested very heavily in security to make sure that this event, um, both of these events, we invested $4 million to make sure these events came off in the fall of 2017. Since then, we have had no problems with the exception 
of an event which did not involve students. There was one non-student handing out very conservative literature on Sproul Plaza. You know, there are all their tables on Sproul Plaza. That was what the free speech movement was originally about, is the ability to have tables on Sproul Plaza and hand out political literature. So he was handing out political literature for an organization called The Turning Point. And um, and the, another a non-student came up to him. They got into a fight, an altercation, and the um, the um, one of the the one of the non-students punched the other non-student. This was the event that Trump was referring to. Right. You cannot stop two non-students from getting into a fight on Sproul Plaza. This is not the university suppressing free speech. I thought suppress, uh, professor, um, professor Trump, pro, President Trump, <laughs> <laughs> President Trump's <laughs> statement, did it, 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 was, it, it, it didn't say anything more than what we already do, which is that we support free speech. Incidentally, the four, um, uh, it was actually former members of the Berkeley College Republicans. I believe only one of the four individuals was a student, mm-hmm. and the others were had graduated already. So I, I, I mean, it in this strange internet age we live in, it, it it's easy to construct fanciful narratives um, with scraps of events to tell the story you want to tell. And I know because you're all here, you, you ask careful questions about what really happened. Well, as we leave free speech, I just want to indicate, I made the comment about the Commonwealth Club being nonpartisan. They're also balanced, very balanced. And I just want to read this one quick sentence. Even Betsy DeVos disagrees with Donald Trump and doesn't believe that government muscle should be used to address campus free speech. So good for Betsy. Let's talk about Berkeley's financial health and the new financial model. I think I don't need to do any more except tell you that would be of interest to us and so please take it from here. I thank you for for um for asking that question. Uh, so when I took over as the interim provost um uh Berkeley had a structural deficit of 150 million dollars. I'm very proud to say Berkeley's budget is now balanced. It's taken a lot of hard work on um on everybody's part on campus, a lot of financial discipline. Um, we have reduced the workforce by about 500 employees. But what we, how we've made most of our progress is with revenue generation. So in a, um, a, a world in California where the state supports us less generously than it once did, we must multiply and diversify our revenue sources. So we're working on six of them. Um, non-degree enrollment, that's university extension and summer session, Um, what what are called self-supporting master's programs. Those are master's programs that are more nimble and responding to market demands and are freer to set their their, um, fees than some of our state-supported programs. 
Um, uh, monetization of intellectual property, monetization of real estate, increase in contract and grant activity, and of course, philanthropy. So that is the new financial model that we're developing for the campus. And I am really so pleased and proud of all the hard work that the campus has done, not just cutting budgets, but really being imaginative about income generating programs that will enable the Berkeley of 10 years from now to be every bit as distinguished as it's been in its history. Uh, Chancellor, have you addressed the debt of the campus? So the debt, for example, with the football stadium and things of that type. I, that one of the um, one of the, the the causes of the deficit was an increase in our long term debt obligation, or increase in our long term debt, and therefore our debt payments. Uh, those, as anybody knows who's had a mortgage, um, you you get, you, you know you. You have to pay those. I have uh, sometimes faculty telling me I should sell the football stadium, and I say, "Well, I don't really know too many people that are looking to buy a football <laughs> stadium." Larry Ellison. <laughs> but so uh, what we what we have done is figured out a financial model where we can manage our debt payments within the context of a balanced budget. Um, the last question that I'm going to uh, entertain, and I think we may want to go to uh, audience questions, is probably the most complex, at least it's been the most complex for me to try to understand and then to even frame as a question. So one of your most ambitious initiatives is to expand the process of translating Berkeley's research <laughs> into inventions and governmental policies and services that will advance the greater good. One of the examples that you often refer to is the participa participation of Berkeley in the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Can you please enlighten us about the Biohub and the type of research that Cal would contribute? And is technology transferred the vehicle most likely to be used to monetize those successful results of university-based scientific research? That's a really great question. I'm going to answer it in two ways. First, I'm going to answer a question that you didn't quite ask, but I really want to say this. So um, one of the questions, Berkeley just finished, as I said before, a strategic plan. And one of the questions we asked us in the, ourselves in the planning process are what are the grand challenges important to the future of California, the nation, and the world where Berkeley can make a particularly distinctive contribution? And there were five of those that the uh, faculty identified. The future of human health, and that very much connects to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Um, uh, the future of democracy. Um, the uh, inequality of wealth. Uh, climate change. And um, the relationship of artificial and human intelligence. And now our faculty are working on those very large topics, trying to drill down to uh, define what we've asked them to do somewhat artificially is three questions in each area that Berkeley is particularly suited to solve. One of the things that really fascinates me about the changed research landscape now from the research landscape in the 90s is how close the, um, how short the distance is between basic science inventions in the laboratory and um, their, um, uh, their, their, their development in the marketplace in, um, the, uh, through um, startup companies. And a lot of these are in the world of medicine. 
um, so that um, I I just am. Um, you can take um, Jennifer Doudna's work with CRISPR Cas9 as a good example of um, a basic discovery in the laboratory. As Jennifer started her work, she was just interested in something about RNA, and then all of a sudden, this incredible. Um, a world of both agricultural and medical technology is going to spring from that fundamental discovery in a pretty short period of time. So um, I think that there's been a change in the world of science and the translatability of discoveries. And there's also been a change in the world of philanthropy where you have... um, uh, 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 wonderfully generous people like Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan who are saying, we want to have an impact on this particular um, scientific problem in a way that we think is going to change lives. Let me add on just briefly. Is the university entitled to retain all of its research patents? I mean, can you require that any employee or scientific researcher at the campus will report their discoveries so that the university can claim ownership. What happens to you, these If you use any resource of the university, if you use university space, if you use university equipment, if you use university grant money, um, if you use your time um, uh, as a university employee, the, the university has the intellectual property rights to those discussions. Now, if I... This is a highly unlikely story I'm going to tell you. But if I, as an English professor, had a secret kind of Dr. Frankenstein laboratory in my garage and used no university time, no university resources, no university money, and then there might be a case for my um, uh, retaining all the ownership of that. But in fact, the um, scientists that indeed have the um, knowledge and the skill and the resources to um, develop such technology can't work in a, you know, the equivalent of Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. They really work in the university. So as my last question, before we get to audience questions, what is big data? Oh. I read about big data and I said to myself, I know what big data is. I, I've become more familiar over the last few years about the importance of using data in research and not using gut or feelings. You know, there was Theranos. There was no data there at Theranos, but what is big data? I, big data is just it's it's it, it's data, but so vast in um, the amount um, of it that um, it really needs artificial intelligence to make sense of the patterns that are in it. Okay. I'm sure that's not a terribly satisfactory. It's, it's well, data only bigger. <laughs> that helps. So I think we're now ready for some audience questions, and I hope you've been formulating them. And, George, you're going to be there with the microphone. Great. Um, and I'd like to remind everyone uh, online and in the radio that they're listening to Chancellor Carol Christ of the UC Berkeley uh, campus uh, in conversation with Joe Epstein. So who would like to ask the first question? Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, Chancellor, um, you mentioned uh, the role of autonomy of uh, coaches in university, and I really have a personal experience, even that begins in high school. Uh, my son was at Menlo Atherton mm. for second grade, 
and the coach approached me and said, he's going to have a fantastic future for quarterback. So, but he's short. Could you allow me to actually give him some hormone? I said, what? <laughs> for, for that, he can, he can perform academic performance later on. And so I removed him from that team and put him on soccer. And it so happened that he actually went to UC system and then went to uh, Boston College, law degree and MBA. So it's, an, it's a DNA of the psyche of, of high school and, and then goes into university. Do you see this scandal have any changes, potential changes of that DNA? I, that's a really um, that's a really interesting and profound question, and what a terrible thing to ha- happen to your son. First of all, I, it seems to me crazy that you could predict that somebody in the second grade could become a great quarterback. But um, but I I I think we have to do some serious reflecting as y- universities and as a society, not just on this particular scandal. We can close these side doors, as they as they say but really about what kind of culture we're creating for our kids. And it, and it has so much to do with, the, um, with, with I think, a, 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 a not healthy dynamic of the competitiveness and overvaluation, as I was saying, of admission into certain um, colleges and universities. Thank you, uh, Chancellor Chris, for sharing your thoughts with us on all these really important issues. I have a couple of uh, comments and then a question. Um, you said that you, the lack of a legacy policy at the University of California, Berkeley, was the thing you get the most flack about. Mm. I think it's the thing you should feel most proud of mm-hmm. about that university. It does, of course, impinge on your fundraising, mm. but it also... <laughs> Uh, helps your diversity, I think, as well, because we know that if you're stocking your undergraduates with legacy admissions, it's not going to be a very diverse student body. So um, with regard to the anxiety that people are feeling, that I think the parents are transmitting that anxiety to their children, and it's primarily coming from the parents who unfortunately know the way the world works and know that going to Harvard or Stanford is a key to a certain level of success. And they know that, and that's why they're transmitting that anxiety to their children. And I'm wondering um, if the goals of diversity at the campus, I'm sure they include economic, socioeconomic diversity. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how, how you would go, how you go about uh, trying to implement that, trying to uh, increase the amount of uh, economic diversity in the student body. Yeah, I, I through um, looking at each student's achievements in the um, context of his or her opportunities. So trying to level the playing field in our evaluation process. We also are allowed to um, look at, not at race or ethnicity, but socioeconomic factors in in admission and weigh weigh those factors. Though I did want to say one thing about, about what you said about parental anxiety. There's been some really interesting research that um, shows that for a um, a student from um, a a privileged background, where he or she goes to college doesn't matter very much. 
Whereas for a student from a less um, privileged background, where he or she goes to college matters a great deal. So um, I think this is really painstaking sociological research that's quite um, interesting in its implications. Chancellor Chris, thank you for your leadership and vision. Um, I had a question about your comment about Berkeley being land poor. Um, in that a uh, couple of years ago, or several years ago now, under the former chancellor, there was talk about the Richmond Field Station and um, development plans for, uh, it sounded like a terrific um, opportunity. And I'm curious for the housing situation, whether and I, I guess other development opportunities. Is that still actively being considered or what's the latest update? We um, we made the decision that the, vi- that the vision that Chancellor Dirks had for the Richmond Field Station was probably not a realistic one at this time, that people who want to come to Berkeley want to come to Berkeley. They don't want to go to Richmond. And um, and students, when well, we've surveyed our students a lot about what they want in housing to make sure we're choosing right in the housing we build. And there are two things that are really important to them. They trump all other factors. Affordability and proximity to campus. And so we're looking to try to develop as much as we can close to campus. Ultimately, we will develop the Richmond Field Station. It will be, I think, a good place for um, perhaps faculty housing, staff housing, but I don't think it's going to help us with our student housing problem. Uh, Thank you, Chancellor, for your thoughts this evening. I've really enjoyed what you shared with us. Um, One of the biggest issues in higher education right now is cost. Mm-hmm. And how do we reduce that cost? And what is the what is the cause of the rising cost of education? And uh, one of the easiest places that people point to is administrative bloat. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, as being both a faculty member and an administrator, what are your thoughts on that issue? Um, I do not think there is administrative bloat at Berkeley. In fact, um, if there was, we eliminated it in our, our efforts to balance the budget. We um, do comparative studies a lot of the level of um, uh, uh, the the. Uh, uh, proportion of administrators in relationship to other R1 universities, and Berkeley always comes out in those studies as pretty leanly run. So I I don't think that's an issue and don't think it's generally an issue in higher education. The problem of affordability in higher education is different for publics and privates. And let me really quickly explain it. In publics, It's an issue of state disinvestment so that the responsibility of paying for college has shifted from the state when, um, you know, some of you went to Cal that used to be basically free um, to um, students and their parents. Um, So at state universities, rising costs are created by largely by state disinvestment. At privates, it's somewhat different, and it's different depending on what severe private you are. But, but for example, I'll use Smith as an example. Um, Smith, at the time I was president, used to raise its tuition by about 5% a year, which is a lot, I mean, if you think of compounding. And, um, but Smith had 60% of its students were on financial aid. So if you think of that 5% increase... If um, you pay the increase for the 60% of students that are on financial aid, basically, it's only um, a 2% increase. And so it's a, it's a, 
I think it's a very difficult situation that higher education has gotten itself into in its financing that it has, I think, quite rightfully trying to be um, much more socioeconomically diverse. But in order to do that, it is pushing up prices higher for those um, students and their families that are paying the full cost of higher education. As you look to get more money from investment, whether it be the research, IP, etc., or even, say, the CZI initiative and other corporate partnerships, you potentially run the risk of having research be biased toward uh, whatever a slant might be from the external organization. How do you prevent that bias, and how do you avoid it altogether? Yeah, that's a great question. I, one of the things that has surprised me that I've heard from our faculty is that they now find that corporate funding um, actually freer in the design of the research that they can pursue with it than a lot of government funding. And so they, um, I think that at least visionary philanthropists understand that they um, need to fund research that has lots of risks to it because that's where the big breakthroughs are going to occur. Of course, you have to be careful about what your your um, the situation that you're describing. But it's it it. Um, But I also think that we have both corporations and individual philanthropists who are um, quite visionary in what they want their contribution to accomplish in terms of moving us forward, whether it's in the area of health or the area of environmental climate change. It's so encouraging to hear about the strategic plan and the emphasis on the future, as well as researching the past. And uh, global democracy, of course, is a critical issue with climate change and so on. How to get control transmitted from the people all around the world. And of course, we're in a kind of lock hold of the current powers and the way things are right now at the United Nations. Can you see UC Berkeley taking a, a proud role, frankly, in, in hosting a conference or co-hosting to really discuss, uh, to have a kind of effectively a global constitutional convention for the modern age and to convert to a population-based democracy? I mean, that seems like a very grand, um, a very grand ambition. I'm not sure we're up to it, but the uh, the um, strategic signature initiative we have on the future of democracy, um, they've they've defined their three problems, and I think that their problems are, um, if we make progress on them, are going to be important to the question you ask. One is migration, citizenship, and migration. Um, uh, people have argued, and I agree with this argument, that the great crisis of climate change is going to be migration and citizenship as um, as people increasingly move 
around the world trying to escape the um, uh, the the effects of climate change. The second is the resilience of democratic institutions, and um, the third is uh, um, speech cultures in um, inter- internet age. So uh, those are all really interesting issues. What was fascinating to me, I play, uh, had no guiding hand on what these grand challenges were, and what's interesting to me is um, the issue of inequality for all five, the issue of big data and the issue of inequality are fundamental to each of these initiatives. Well, thank you, Chancellor. Um, I moved to California with my family in the 1960s, mm-hmm. um, entered uh, high school, and very quickly heard about this, this treasure called the University of California, and in particular, Berkeley, um, the pride of uh, taxpayers living in California, and a a significant destination for California students. Um, I went to Berkeley and saw what all the excitement was about, graduated in 1970, I guess as you were (laughs) arriving. Um, And in recent years, I've come back to California. And it's noticeable to me that this conversation, this excitement about the University of California, including Berkeley, seems to have died down. And it makes me wonder, where is the public university ideal and vision in the state today? And what can not just people like you um, as a leader, but all of us do to foster or encourage interest in what a public university is all about? That is such a great question. I I wish I could answer it profoundly and adequately. Um, the um, there for the six of the California campuses now have over a hundred thousand applications for spots in their undergraduate classes. When you reject as many students as all of these campuses routinely reject, and admissions decisions are coming out today after tomorrow, eleven in the morning, you stop. You it's harder and harder for the public to believe in you, I think, as a public institution. So there is a huge issue of enrollment capacity. And as people feel increasing urgency about what a college degree can do, how necessary it is for a secure professional and economic future, the the, the, the sense of this limited good becomes um, all, all the more acute for people. I, I, um, I, 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 we have to solve the enrollment capacity problem. I have some ideas about how to do that. Um, but Berkeley is now 41,000 students. It's probably as big as I think it should be right now. Um, but it means we're rejecting a lot of kids. And UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, um, UC Irvine, uh, UC San Diego, they're all in the same, UC Davis, they're all in the same boat. They're just rejecting a lot of kids. And the uh, the legislature doesn't hear from the parents who are ecstatic that their kid got in. They hear from the parents who are very angry that their kid um, uh, didn't didn't get in, and they also see universities that are less representative of the state's diversity than they feel they should be. 
I, I hope that, you know, said now that people believe more people that they trust in their own social circle than media. And I hope people that believe in the university say why they believe in it. Berkeley is the number one university in the country whose alumni come from families in the bottom 20% of U.S. income distribution and wind up in the top 1%. That's an engine of social mobility. We have more Pell Grant students than the entire Ivy League combined. And every day, our um, scholars and scientists are making discoveries that are going to change the world. So just saying that in whatever social circles you move in and that the University of California is important. It is the model around the world for a great public university system. Okay, we have time for just a couple quick questions. Let's change the track a bit. Good evening, Chancellor. Um, I see, uh, as a faculty member, uh, more and more applicants who present with uh, course completions uh, that are courses taken online. Mm-hmm. And some of these are from for-profit institutions, and others are from reputable places. Uh, and I was wondering what um, activities uh, Cal and the other campuses have taken with respect to uh, potential online courses uh, vis-a-vis the lecture classes with 900 students, for example. Yeah, I, I think one of the ways in which I would you know, um, be somewhat critical of Berkeley is I don't think it really has a unified digital strategy. I think uh, the, uh, the online universe is, is here and, um, and that courses can very productively use mixed modalities of both a combination of online and face-to-face kind of work, and that experienced learners can take online courses really, I, th- I think, productively and, and, and learn a great deal from them. There's some areas in where they work better than others. Um, it was a very interesting experiment in um, uh, statistics courses in which uh, Carnegie Mellon developed an online statistics course and a bunch of um, uh, colleges did a research project in which they had students who took the online version and they had students who took you know, a regular traditional kind of face-to-face version. And the online students actually mastered the subject better, which is kind of interesting. Big data. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Big data. data. (laughs) Berkeley has a major rent control, but also there's a lot of housing over there. Is there any way to give incentives to people that own all these houses over there or apartments so that they can rent to students uh, and give them some incentive to rent to students to help cut down the housing shortage. Yeah, that's really an interesting question. Um, if you were talking, if someone from the city was next to me, they would have a very different answer than I'm about to give you, which is they feel that Berkeley should build more housing so students aren't crowding out non-students in the housing market. Um, there have been efforts in Berkeley to try to get, there's one that's try for seniors who are empty nesters to have a student in their house who would do errands and um, and uh, and for in exchange for a room there's another um, movement in Berkeley trying to get people who have a large enough backyard to build mother-in-law apartments in their backyard so I think there are a lot of um, 
efforts that are in process. Uh, the students are, I don't think that there's a problem with landlords not being willing to rent to students. Uh, I think there's a problem with there just not being enough housing. Well, at least at least we're not at the communist solution yet of turning all the palaces in Leningrad over to, to 100, you know, 50 <laughs> families in each place yet. Um, I think we'll, we'll finish with one uh, question from someone student age. Yes, student age being one year from graduation. Oh, great. <laughs> um, recent alum asking about diversity on campus in the sense of experiences from students that are either out of state or out of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that one of my favorite experiences was getting to know those other students, but a problem that they would always tell me or was discussed was the balance of out-of-state students with in-state students. And how do you see that balance in the future? Because I know there are many residents from California that do have an issue with many out-of-state students or international students for this public institution. Uh, Do you or does the university or even the University of California broadly have a vision for um, that out-of-state balance between in-state students? Well, the University of California, like many state universities, has, as the state has withdrawn funding, has used out-of-state students as one of its income streams to try to diversify its budget. Um, There are, uh, even Berkeley, which has uh, 24.6% out-of-state and international combined, um, is low in relationship to many state universities. So, uh, uh, University of Michigan, 50% out of state. University of Virginia, 50% out of state. University of Oregon, 50% out of state. I believe our out-of-state and international students contribute a great deal to the diversity of the campus. And it is certainly the, the out-of-state students are certainly important to the financial model of the campus. The legislature feels very different. The legislature feels we should reduce the percentage of -of out-of-state students at Berkeley to 10%. Um, That would create a huge hole in our budget and would would really have a a very deleterious effect on the university. So um, if that came without the state funding to fill that hole, it would be, in my view, a bad policy. And did they offer the state funding to fill that hole? No, 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 they haven't. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Thank you very much, Chancellor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much.